Good evening, everybody. If you would open up a Bible to Romans, the 15th chapter. I'm going to read verse, a verse there in Romans chapter 15 as we get ready for question and answer night for the month of December. In fact, it is the final Q&A night for 2017. As always, I appreciate very much the good questions that are submitted to me by folks here in this assembly right now and folks who later on will be listening to my voice through the sound of this recording. I get questions from all kinds of places, uh, but I just appreciate that. And I should let you know that my cup overfloweth with plenty more good questions that are in store for the next year if the Lord should allow the world to stand. So fret not, Q&A night will be well supplied for the immediate future. All of tonight's questions do center around a common theme, and that theme can be found right here in Romans chapter 15 in verse number 4. In Romans 15 and in verse 4, Paul says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Those things that are written in former days... That's a reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. And for the past 11 plus months, we have been working through a congregational Bible reading plan that is chronicling God's story, His story, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. As God works about to bring about His plans and His purposes through His chosen people, the Israelite nation. And this year I've tried to do lots of different kinds of things to try to encourage us and to keep us invested in that reading. We've had, of course, the weekly reader's companion that's on the back page of the bulletin every week. I've done some sermons from time to time over the last several months that are taken from selections of things we're reading that particular week. As well, we did a Q&A back in the month of June where we answered five questions that were directly and explicitly from our reading of the Old Testament. Tonight, as we start winding down these final couple of weeks of the reading schedule, I want to do just one final round of Q&A with five more questions from our Bible reading in the Old Testament. Now, please don't freak out as soon as I say five questions. Everybody's doing the math. Josh does like 20 minutes on each of these questions. We're going to be here for an hour. What in the world? No. These are shorter length kinds of questions. And the answers that I'm going to give this evening are not going to take 20 minutes apiece. We'll do this in kind of a brisk sort of way. And I'm going to kind of deal with these, I think, in kind of a chronological sort of fashion. And as we go throughout these five questions, maybe your memory is going to be jogged as we kind of trace out all the different things that we've read over the course of the last 11 months. Let's start off with a question that maybe you have never considered before. But somebody has considered, and in fact, they considered this question as a result of browsing on Wikipedia. You know about Wikipedia, don't you? Those of you that use the internet, Wikipedia is apparently the source for all knowledge today. What happens when you get on Wikipedia? Well, when you get on Wikipedia, you see all kinds of things. And this question is spawned from something on Wikipedia. The question is, why are there pieces of art that depict Moses... With horns. If you were to do tonight, don't do this right now while I'm preaching, but if you were to pull up Wikipedia on your smartphone, and you were to type in Moses, not only would you get lots of good biographical information about Moses, but you would also, you would also see that picture or something like that picture. That is a sculpture of Moses that was done by the famous artist Michelangelo back in the early 1500s. And if you'll notice right there at the top of his head, yeah, there they are. He's got horns on the top of his head. 
In fact, it's not just Michelangelo that gave Moses horns. There are several artists from the 1400s and the 1500s who gave Moses horns in paintings and pictures and in various kinds of sculptures. The question that we have this evening is, why did people do that? Why are people putting horns on Moses? Well, the answer to that question is found in Exodus the 34th chapter. Would you find Exodus 34? We'll be in the Old Testament for the duration of our time tonight. In Exodus 34... After Moses had went up to the top of Mount Sinai in order to receive the second set of tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. Remember, the first set of tablets got smashed. They got broken. So God gave Moses a second set to bring back down to the people. We're told there in Exodus 34 and in verse 29, Exodus 34, 29, that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone or was shining because he had been talking with God. Do you see the word shone there? I consulted at least a half dozen different English translations and I think every single one of them render the word shone there. Our English Bibles have correctly translated the Hebrew word karan as shone. That is the correct rendition of that. However, you need to know, we're reading this and it says, okay, Moses' face shone. Something was shiny about his face as a result of him talking to God. We see that and we get that. But let's remember, we're all reading our English Bibles, our English translations. Got all kinds of translations people are using tonight. I'm reading from the ESV. You may be using the King James. You may be using the New American Standard. You may be using the NIV. What you need to remember about that is you need to remember that Michelangelo... All those guys who did all those works of art, they didn't have the English translation of the Bible like you and I do today. Which means that the Bible that Michelangelo was probably reading from, or maybe better stated, the Bible that was read to him by the priests and the clergymen, it was the Bible that was called the Vulgate. That's a picture of a really, really old copy of the Latin Vulgate. That is the Latin translation of the Bible. And in fact, that was the standard text. It was the standard Bible of the Roman Catholic Church for about 400 years. And unfortunately, Michelangelo and all the Catholic folks and anybody else who is reading out of the Latin Vulgate, unfortunately, the Vulgate mistranslated that word karan. They translated it with the word karen. Now, it's spelt similar And it even sounds kind of similar, but it's a completely different word. And it has a completely different meaning. Which means that if you were reading, if you read Latin very well, if you had a Latin Vulgate Bible in front of you, you were reading Exodus 34 verse 29, it would not say, Moses' face shone. No, it would say, Moses had horns. Because that's what the word karen means. It means horns. That, friends, that is a mistranslation. And that is unfortunate. And as a result of that, I don't know about you, but I'm willing to give Michelangelo and all those other artsy folks, I'm willing to give them a little bit of a pass here. Because based on the Bible that they had access to, it sounded like Moses had horns. If you read Latin, yeah, well, yeah, of course it says it says Moses had horns. But Moses did not have horns. In fact, 
kind of glad that he didn't have horns because a couple of those sculptures, they creeped me out. That one on the top right just really gave me the creeps as I was looking at that last night. Makes me not want to meet Moses someday. So maybe what we need to do is we need to go over to Europe and get a chisel and start chiseling those horns off the top of Moses' head. Turn our attention now to this second question this evening. And it's a question not about Moses, but it's a question about Samuel. Here is another of the important figures in Old Testament history. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 7, if you will. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we spent some time not just in our reading this year in Samuel, but during vacation Bible school. We spent a great deal of time in the books of Samuel as we read and studied about the life of David, which meant we also read and studied some things about Saul. And we read and studied some things even about Samuel. We know about Samuel. Samuel is that man who when we come here in the book of Samuel, we know him as being this, this he's a young child, and how he does certain things, and how he, he helps and does certain things in the, in, in, in the tabernacle service. We know that he was a prophet for God. We know that he was a spokesman for God in various ways. But is it possible that Samuel was also a priest? Look in 1 Samuel chapter 7 in verse 10. Here's where this question comes from. In 1 Samuel 7 and in verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. It is from that little segment of Scripture that this question comes, and that is, how could Samuel be offering sacrifices when he wasn't a priest, when he wasn't a Levite? And that's a good question. I appreciate the person who asked this question because this means they're paying attention to the reading. They're being careful in their study of the Scriptures. This person understood that only the Levites, and more specifically, only the the Levitical priests, only they were authorized to offer the burnt offerings and the animal sacrifices that came before God in worship. And so the question is, what's Samuel doing doing this? What's he offering the sacrifices for? He's not a Levite. You read at the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, Samuel is from the tribe of Ephraim. That's a completely different tribe. A tribe that did not have authority to go around administering various burnt offerings and animal sacrifices. So how can he be doing this? In fact, how can he be doing this when just a couple of chapters later, he's going to go and he's going to rebuke Saul for doing that very thing? Well, I want to give you two possible answers to that this evening. First and foremost, let's stop and think for a moment about who was it that raised Samuel? It wasn't Hannah. No, it was Eli. Eli raised Samuel. His mother took Samuel to Eli at a very young age, took him to the tabernacle, and Samuel, in a very real sense, he grew up in the tabernacle. And so as a result, as a result of being around Eli, who was a priest, as a result of that, it may just be that Samuel was kind of like an adopted Levite. As Eli raised him and as he trained him to minister to the Lord, 1 Samuel 3 verse 1 tells us. And so even though Samuel may not have technically been a Levite, it may be that he was treated like a Levite. And thus maybe he did have the authority to do some of the things that the Levitical priest did. That's one possibility. The other possibility, and I tend to lean more towards this second one, the other possibility is that Samuel didn't actually offer the sacrifices himself. It may just mean that he commissioned someone else to do the sacrifices. You think about this. There's a number of places in the Old Testament where the Bible will say that David offered sacrifices. But most of the time, David was not the one who was offering the sacrifices. 
David was not authorized to do that for the people. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was not a Levite. But David had the advantage of traveling with a priest pretty much all of the time. And so David could say, hey, bring Abiathar up here. Bring him up here. He's a priest. He's a Levite. Let's get him up here. We need to offer some sacrifices unto God. David knew that he could not do that, but he always had a guy kind of on staff who was able to do that. And so when the text says that Samuel offered the sacrifices, it may just mean that Samuel got a priest and said, hey, you, you get up here, you get this sacrifice going, we need to offer worship unto God. The truth of the matter is, we use this kind of language all the time, just even in our own everyday talk, don't we? Somebody comes along and says, oh, I'm building a new house. Really? How many nails have you been hammering? How much of the drywall did you actually put up? We understand most of the time, I realize there are occasions when somebody says, I'm building a house. They really are the ones doing the building. But most of the time, if I come to you and I say, hey, I'm building a house, you're going to know what? You're going to know that that means I'm having a house built for me. I'm paying for it, or I'm supervising it, or I've authorized the construction of this house. You know, think about it, Solomon was told, we're told in the Bible, Solomon built the temple. How many of the actual nails do you think Solomon drove in? Probably not very many. What that means is, is that means that he made it happen. He was the king, and so he had the authority to instruct other people to do it. And so when we read here in 1 Samuel 7 verse 10, and actually this isn't even the only place where Samuel does this, there's a couple of times he does this, But it may simply mean, as we read here, it may simply mean that Samuel made the sacrifices happen and that he didn't actually do the sacrificing himself. I think I think either of those explanations fit. And like I said, I tend to lean more toward the second one there. Since we're here in Samuel, let's just move a little bit forward in the Kings. Would you find 2 Kings, please? Look in 2 Kings chapter 23. In 2 Kings chapter 23... There is a wonderful statement that is made here about the young king Josiah. And it is what has spawned this third question. In 2 Kings 23, I'm reading here in verse 25. In 2 Kings 23 and in verse 25, about Josiah, the Bible says, that before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses nor did any like him arise after him. Now this question, before I put it on the screen, I think this question is the result of us just living in a hyper-competitive culture. And how when we read a verse like that where it says, Josiah, greater, better than any king before him or any king who came after him, we read that verse and what we do in our minds is we start automatically building a big tournament bracket of kings. We start putting a list of all the different kings who ever served in the the kingdom of Israel and we're going to determine who exactly was the best king of all of them. And the question that's before us tonight is simply this. Is 2 Kings 23 verse 25, is it saying that Josiah was a better king than David? David's arguably the most famous of all of the kings. But was Josiah a better king than him? Because when you read that verse there in 2 Kings 23, 25, it sure sounds like Josiah was pretty much the bestest king who ever did live. Well, let me just say about that, let me just start by saying this. We need to be very careful that we don't take passages like this overly literal. This verse, I do not believe. I do not believe 
this verse means that the writer of Kings, that he sat down and he just kind of scored, he kept a scorecard of all of the kings of Israel who ever served. And he had all these different criteria that he was judging these guys by. He's got his own little system of metrics. And at the end of going through all of those metrics, he's going to kind of put all these kings into the BCS formula and he's going to determine who's the number one seed. No, that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is really much more akin to saying, my grandmama's grandmama's cooking is the best that there ever was. Now let me ask you, when I say that, when I say my grandma's cooking was the best that there ever was, does that mean that I have evaluated all of the cooking that has ever taken place in the entire universe and this is the conclusion that I've come to? No. It's kind of like when we say, I have never laughed so hard in my life. When I say that, Does that statement mean that I have sat down and I have cataloged every single instance of laughter in my entire life and I have medical, mathematical verification that this moment right here, this is the instance that I have laughed the hardest? No, that's not what that means. And when we read 2 Kings 23, verse 25, this is not meant to be taken in an overly literal fashion. This simply is just a statement to let us know What a wonderful and what a remarkable king Josiah was. In fact, I want to suggest to you that if we take this verse just super hyper literally, that there was nobody better after him and nobody better before him, what's going to happen is is we're going to run into some trouble. Because what in the world then are we going to do with a passage like 2 Kings 18? Would you find 2 Kings 18? Look, just just turn back a couple of pages. In 2 Kings 18 and verse 5, here the writer, the same guy writing... Here the writer is talking about King Hezekiah. And look at what he says about Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Well, which is it? Is it Hezekiah or is it Josiah? Both places says, best king, nobody better before him and nobody better after him. Which is it? You see, when we take it to be meant in a literal kind of sense, what happens is, is we're setting ourselves up to contradict one passage of Scripture with another passage of Scripture. These statements are not meant to be taken in that way. Furthermore, and I'll just say this here just kind of as a bonus. If you are sitting down in your mind, and you are building kind of a tournament of champions to determine who is the number one king in Israelite history, and you're wondering, is the Bible saying that Josiah is a better king than David? I will simply remind you of this. I will remind you that the Bible says that Jesus sits on the throne of David, not Josiah, Luke one thirty-two, And that Jesus is quite regularly, throughout the New Testament, He is compared to, compared to David, as in Peter's sermon that he preached in chapter 2. Jesus is not compared to King Josiah or King Hezekiah or King Asa or any other king. It's always compared to David. And so if you are building your tournament bracket of Israelite kings, David David needs to be your number one seed. There's really no ifs, ands, or buts about that. We're rolling right along. How about a question that I'd like to think that Indiana Jones would be interested in. Do you remember Indiana Jones? I see some folks, they know about Indiana Jones. Here's a question that Indiana Jones would be interested in. What about the Ark of the Covenant? Are we ever going to find the Ark of the Covenant? You know, long before...
before the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, long before that movie ever came out, there has always been lots of interest and lots of speculation about the Ark of the Covenant. What are the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant? And without question, I'll be the first to admit, it would be an amazing artifact to have to be able to see that with our own eyes. I know when I've taught Bible class before with the kids, and we're talking about all the intricate parts and what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, I'm trying with my words as best I can to describe this amazing uh, structure, this amazing vessel that was created in order to, to honor God and according to His specifications. It would be great to have that and be able to see that maybe on display in a museum somewhere. Well, invariably, whenever you do talk about the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant, There's usually a couple of different ideas that come to the surface as to what might have happened to it. The first has to do with King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem and they burnt down the temple. But not before Nebuchadnezzar went into the temple and he looted out many of the vessels that were made of gold and silver and bronze and all of the things that were used there in the service of the temple. And in fact, in the Bible, we actually have a big long list of the things that he took out of the temple. And so it may very well be that Nebuchadnezzar, when he went into the temple, he got the Ark of the Covenant. And as he was doing that raid on the temple, he got the Ark and he then took it back with him to Babylon... Who knows what he did with it there? Maybe he melted that thing down and then cut it up and made it into a bunch of watches or a bunch of bracelets and now the ark is never to be seen again. Maybe that's one possibility. However, I would tell you that in that list of the temple vessels, and you can find that there in 2 Kings chapter 25, I would tell you that in that list of all the temple vessels that he took out of the temple before going back to Babylon, the ark of the covenant is actually not mentioned as one of them. And so some have wondered, well, maybe Nebuchadnezzar didn't take it. Maybe he didn't even have access to the ark. Maybe the ark disappeared sooner than 586 B.C. Like, for example, in 925 B.C., when Shishak, that's the king of Egypt, when he came and he sacked Jerusalem, you can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter 14, Is it possible that maybe Shishak, he came in and he took all the vessels and all of the treasures from the temple and then took them back with him to the land of Egypt? In fact, that, 1 Kings chapter 14, that actually is the reason that Harrison Ford and all his cohorts, that's why they're looking for the ark in Egypt. Because that's where a lot of people believe that it is even to this day, that it's somewhere in that area. There's even an old uh, tradition amongst the Ethiopians that they believe that it's in some of the mountains of Ethiopia, that it's somewhere in that particular region. And so I'll just say right here, I guess it is possible that the Ark of the Covenant is maybe still somewhere out there waiting to be discovered. But can I show you a passage that I just became familiar with in the last couple of weeks? It's in Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, I had either just never noticed this verse before or just hadn't been paying very good attention. But when we were doing our reading through the book of Jeremiah, I read this verse. And this is a verse that maybe is worth highlighting in your Bible if you're ever having the Ark of the Covenant discussion with your friends. In Jeremiah chapter 3, look at what the Lord says in verse 16. In Jeremiah 3 and in verse 16... The Bible says there, this is God speaking. He says, And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declare the Lord, 
They shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind. It shall not be remembered. It shall not be missed. Notice the last statement. It shall not be made again. It shall not be made again. I don't know about the rest of you, but that sounds like to me that the ark either had already been destroyed or it was about to be destroyed in the disastrous judgment that God was soon going to bring upon the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at the very next verse, look there at verse 17. It says that at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And the reason there's that emphasis there on what's going to be the throne of the Lord is because the Ark of the Covenant was what? The Ark of the Covenant, that was God's throne. That was God's throne on earth when He was amongst His people. That was where God sat, if you will. And so Jeremiah says, God's throne is gone, or it's going to be gone. And we're not going to make another one. We're not even going to remember about that. We're not going to miss it. Instead, he says, the city of Jerusalem is going to serve as God's throne. And I think that's probably a reference to the new Jerusalem that's talked about in Revelation, the 21st chapter. But the point of Jeremiah chapter 3 is that the ark, the ark would be gone. And it wouldn't be needed anymore. We're not going to need the ark of the covenant anymore. And so what I guess I'm suggesting tonight is, is that even if we did find the ark sometime today, it would really actually be a step backward. It would be a step in the wrong direction. God is trying to move us forward, just like He was trying to move these people forward. God's not going to go back and start using things from the old. Not going to go using the ark anymore. Not going to use that as His throne anymore. God's going in a new direction. He's moving forward to the new. And so a return ark, that would be a return back to the old ways. It would kind of be like if somebody somewhere over in the Middle East, if they if they unearthed the tabernacle. Somebody's doing a bunch of digging over there in a big excavation, and they happen to unearth the tabernacle. Wow! We found the tabernacle! Let's start sacrificing animals again. That's what that would be like if we decided to go back to all of that. But we're not doing that. The Bible says we're moving forward. We're moving forward in Christ and to Christ. The book of Hebrews tells Emphatically, we can't go back. we got to move forward. We're moving forward to the better covenant that Christ has provided. Christ's covenant is better. And so Jeremiah 3.16, I believe, gives a lot of credence to the possibility that God in His providence had the ark removed. Maybe He did that through Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe He did that through Shishak. Maybe He did that through somebody else or through some other means. But God had it removed because we don't need it anymore. God's moving forward to something else. And in fact, even if we did have the ark, it'd be a step in the wrong direction. And so God had it taken away, which means if the ark is still in existence, I believe it will likely never be found because I don't believe that God wants it to be found. Now, I realize that as soon as I say that, I'm going to turn on the news tomorrow morning and live on CNN, live from Ethiopia, we found the Ark of the Covenant. I'm just certain that's going to happen. But I don't want to give the impression tonight that Jeremiah 3.16 is conclusively saying that there's no chance, no way, no how the Ark's ever going to be found. That's, that's not what the, I don't believe the verse is saying that conclusively. But if I was a betting man, I do think Jeremiah 3.16 is saying... 
Eh, folks can look for it, but eh, they're probably not going to find it. Because the simple fact is, we don't need it anymore. Finally then tonight, would you find Ezra chapter 1? In Ezra chapter 1, we just recently, in the last couple of weeks, finished the book of Ezra. I love the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, reading those two books together. Those are the books that tell us about God's people being freed from captivity and getting the opportunity to go back home, to go back to Jerusalem. They've been away for so long. Let's read about that. In Ezra chapter 1, look in verse number 2. In Ezra 1 and in verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, He's talking to the people of Israel. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, He has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with Him, and let Him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, beside free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The question that comes here as we are wrapping up, really this is near the very end of the story of the Old Testament, the question is, why did Cyrus do this? Why did Cyrus allow the Jews, who he had control of, They were subjugated to him. He was the king. Why did he let them just just go? They would have made useful slaves. They would have made good servants for him. Why did he let them go home? Now I understand somebody probably be quick to say, well, because prophecy needed to be fulfilled. And I do understand that. I understand that this was a matter of prophecy that did end up being fulfilled. You can read in Isaiah 44 and 45. God had prophesied long before that this guy named Cyrus would come along and he would free his people. But my question is on a more practical level, why would he do it? Why would any king do this? Why would you just let people go? Well, the short answer is actually found in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. And that is that the Lord stirred His Spirit to do so. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's the reference of the fulfillment of those prophecies. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And then those verses that we just read a moment ago, verses 2, 3, and 4. That's the short answer. God stirred up his spirit to let the people go. But you realize that Cyrus Cyrus didn't really recognize that God was stirring up his spirit. Nowhere do we read Cyrus saying, Oh, the Lord has stirred me up and He's changed my heart about this to cause me to let all of you people go. I'm going to let all these Hebrews go back. No, that's not the way that that worked. Actually, we know exactly what Cyrus said. Because the cylinder of Cyrus, it contains the actual decree that he issued. That cylinder was dug up and it was found back in 1879 in the region of Mesopotamia. And on that cylinder, I'm going to leave this to the experts of people who are able to read that kind of language. On that cylinder, what it says is it says, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the spirit of Marduk stirred me up. Marduk, a pagan god, stirred me up to send everybody home, to restore their god to their temples, because I want all of these different gods in all of these different regions, in all of these different lands, I want all of these people's gods to pray for me and to bless me. 
fact, you can even kind of see that in some of Cyrus's words here. Look again at Ezra chapter 1. Look at verse number, look at verse number 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. He's not taking ownership that this is my God. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus's idea was that the God of Israel, he just lived in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to send you all back there so that your God that's residing there in Jerusalem, He'll bless me and He'll take care of me and He'll provide things for me. Do you see really kind of irony in all this? Cyrus believed that his false, pagan, Babylonian God had stirred him up to let the people go. And I point all of that out because that's a really good example of what? That right there, folks, is an example of the providence of God. That is God using circumstances. That is God using a pagan ruler in order to accomplish His will. That guy didn't even know he was accomplishing God's will, but he was. That is the amazing power of the God that we serve, the amazing power of the God that we've been reading about all throughout the Old Testament. And that brings an end. Question and answer night for the month of December. Q&A night for the rest of this year. You'd be getting your songbook if you're using one. We'll get ready to sing the song that's been selected as a song of invitation. Number 102, And Can It Be? Let me ask you. I'm looking around the room. There's a couple people that were not here this morning. But most of you were here this morning. You've had... You've had almost seven hours to let the sermon that I preached this morning percolate inside, stir around in your mind. We talked about baptism. We talked about why baptism is a big deal and why it is that you ought to be baptized. What are you thinking now? Several hours have passed. Sometimes that's what folks need. They just need a little bit more time to sit on it. Kind of let that stew and let that, let that really germinate in your heart. What are you thinking? Where are you at right now? Are you ready now? Maybe, maybe that's what you needed. Maybe the Lord in His care and in His love and mercy and providence, He allowed you to live for a few hours longer. He gave you the opportunity to be here tonight so that you could respond to the blessed gospel of His Son Jesus. I'll say what I said this morning. All things are ready for you to become a Christian. All the things that we do here, having that baptistry prepared, water in it, fresh, hot, ready to go, got garments back here, towels, people standing ready to assist you. We'll guide you through all the logistics stuff. Sometimes folks get really concerned about the logistics of how does that work and what do I do. Don't worry about all that. We'll take care of all of that. We will make that as easy and painless as possible. We just simply want to assist folks in being right with the Lord. If we can help you tonight in confessing Jesus as the Son of God publicly, then being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, we're ready to do that. We're ready to do that. It'll just take just a few minutes. And you'll be a Christian. You'll have the hope of heaven in your life and in your heart. You ready to do that? Brother or sister, if there's sin in your life and you need to repent, I didn't extend that invitation this morning, but that invitation is extended to you as well. If you need the prayers and the encouragement of the brothers and sisters here, we stand ready to help you as well. Whatever your need might be, would you take advantage of this moment? Would you do that right now while we stand and while we sing?